You're listening to a sermon series on Judges, Broken People, Faithful God. To learn more, visit linworthroadchurch.com. My name is Nick Crothers. I'm one of the pastors here at Linworth. And uh, as a church, we've been working our way through the book of Judges this summer, and we're going to continue on in that this morning. But again, if you're new or if perhaps you just don't know me that well, we haven't had a, our paths haven't crossed yet, uh, you might not realize this. Uh, I know Chris just talked about how courageous and brave dads are, but, but you might not realize this, that I am not by nature courageous. In fact, many times I have found myself paralyzed by fear, which may surprise some of you if, uh, given the fact that if you were here with us during our series through the Gospel of John, I and one of those messages told a story about how I had gotten this epic fist fight in high school. And, you know, there were cops and the whole deal. And, uh, and so you may be thinking, wow, this, this guy gets into fist fights. He, he must be courageous, right? Well, not so fast, because one of my other epic moments from high school consisted of me having to wear a heart monitor around for a few weeks because I was convinced I was dying and I had some sort of irregular heartbeat. And so <laughs> this thing was ridiculous. I had these paddles on my heart. I had this thing clipped to my belt and... Whenever I felt like my heart was out of rhythm, I'd hit play and it would record it. And each night I'd have to send it in through the telephone. And, you know, it came back. There was nothing wrong with me. I was just a paranoid high schooler. And uh, <laughs> So apparently, I'm, uh, not only am I at times paralyzed by fear and perhaps a coward, but uh, apparently I'm also a hypochondriac. And so I have that working for me as well. And uh, I would love to be able to stand up here and tell you this morning that since becoming a Christian, that all of that has changed. And perhaps I have seen some growth. I mean, I, I think I have uh, in those areas. But, but the reality is, is I still often have a deep-seated tendency to be fearful and anxious and to self-protect. In fact, just a little over a year ago, I was, I was working at my old job and, and I had to take something to the post office. And I was on my way back and I was driving through one of these neighborhoods in Bexley. And it's, it's one of these neighborhoods where cars park on the street and... I'm driving, and I begin to notice the car in front of me starts to swerve slightly. And uh, it, the swerving gets worse, so much so. And, and as I'm seeing this, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I, I can't believe some drunk guy uh, is driving at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. You know, it's just, this is crazy. Well, the swerving gets worse, and he ends up sideswiping the side of a car. And uh, immediately we get to a four-way stop, and he kind of slows down for a second, but then he guns it and, and makes a sharp left turn and drives through some bushes and then crashes into the side of a garage. And so I begin to think, uh, what, what's going on? You know, what, what, what am I to do? And so I get to the stop sign, and again, all this craziness happens, and, and, and I, I am in that moment trying to decide what to do, and, and I drive straight through the stop sign, and I begin to continue on my way back to work. Now, before you think I'm the biggest loser in the world, let me try to explain what was going through my mind. Uh, first off, I was thinking, again, I can't believe some drunk guy just drove into a garage at 11 a.m. Uh, secondly, I was thinking, technically I'm at work right now, and so to be a faithful employee, I, I should be getting back. But thirdly, I was thinking, you know, the, the thing I forgot to tell you is that when he made that sharp left-hand turn, a guy had to jump out of the way to avoid from getting hit by him. And so I thought, well, that guy can explain to the cops what happened. I'm, I'm not the only witness here. Well, I get about a fourth of a mile down the road, and, and I kind of come to my senses, and I realize I, I have to go back. And so I turn the car around. I, I drive back to the scene of the crash, 
But this time, the, the car is, again, stuck in the garage, but he's revving the engine, and the tires are spinning. And, and so now I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this guy is now trying to flee the scene of the crash. And then all of a sudden, I see a guy come running towards the car, and he has like a hammer or a crowbar in his hand, and he begins to try to break out one of the windows. And now I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this guy's trying to kill the guy who almost killed him. <laughs> yeah. And so at this point, I'm, I'm completely frozen in fear. I at some point, this woman across the street joins me. She was a neighbor. And so we're observing all of this about 200 yards away. And the guy continued to have his foot on the gas. And uh, eventually, the tires exploded from all of the friction. And so I, I I'm not, can't remember exactly, but at some point, the, the woman and I began talking. And we realized that something medically must be going on. And in other words, there, there was no way that this was just some drunk guy trying to get away. And yet, to my shame, I still couldn't find it in me to go over there and to help. I mean, part of it was the, the car revving and the tires exploding was, um, was part of it. But I think overall, I was just terrified. I was in that mode of trying to self-protect. Well, at some point, the cops get there. They, they end up breaking the window. They pull the guy out, and he's clearly unconscious. And they begin to do CPR until the ambulance arrived. And, and unfortunately, I never found out what happened to him. I, I tried to look it up, but I I could never find anything. And it was all just so surreal. But as I drove back to work, I couldn't help but dwell on the fact that in, in, in the midst of an insane, crazy situation, my response was to be a coward. Now, I know we all like to think, we watch these movies, and we think, you know, if the bank was being robbed or the gas station, that you would be the one, at least I like to think that I'd be the one who would tackle the guy and and yet I had a similar thing, and I, I did nothing. I stayed a coward. And, and maybe some of you are thinking, wow, our, our pastor is quite a loser here. I'm not sure I trust him. Um, maybe some of you are feeling more gracious this morning, and you're thinking, well, you're not a trained first responder. And so that makes sense that you weren't ready for that. But either way, the reality was someone needed help. I was there, and yet because of fear, I chose to disengage. I chose to self-protect. Well, in today's story, in the book of Judges, we're going to meet a fellow coward, a fellow self-protector named Gideon. And Gideon is perhaps, I think, one of the most misunderstood characters in the Bible. You know, many of us grew up hearing the story of Gideon in Sunday school, and, and we grew up believing that he was some sort of awesome hero of the faith. But as we'll see today and, and the next couple of weeks as we unpack his life, we'll see that he was actually a coward. And to be honest, he was kind of overall a crummy person. Which is okay, because, you know, the thing is, is, is the Bible is really about one hero. It's about one story, and it's about Jesus Christ. And so, uh, again, there's things we can take from some of these characters of the Bible, but there's really only one true hero. And so let's go ahead and dive into the story. I'm not going to have you stand while we read, because it's quite a long chapter, and, and it'll take some time to go through it. But uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 6, which if you didn't bring one, you can use one of our pew Bibles And that's found on page 205. And as we go through the story this morning, I believe we're going to see three gifts that God offers to Gideon, which I believe he still offers those same three gifts to cowards like you and me today. And so starting in verse 1, it says this, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. 
Now that's worded a little weird in the ESV, but all it's saying is that the Midianites were so cruel, they were so oppressive that Israel had to hide in the mountains and hide in caves. And so let's keep reading verse 3. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Okay, so what what is this saying? Well, basically, the Israelites, they would every year plant their fields and their crops, and, and then when it was time to then harvest those plants, the Midianites would come, and they would invade Israel, and they would steal everything. And so the Israelites here are basically starving to death. And so because of this oppression, because of this uh, trial, they cry out to the Lord. And then the thing to notice is that this oppression only lasted for seven years, which at this point is the shortest in the book of Judges, but it appears to be by far the most extreme, the most severe. So again, what do they do? Well, at the end of verse six, it says they cried out to help or they cried out for help to Yahweh. And so how does Yahweh respond? Well, let's keep reading verse seven. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. And so that's interesting. The people, they again cry out for help. But uh, instead of sending a judge or deliverer right away, this time God first sends a preacher. He sends a prophet to the people. And so in other words, God is saying here, look, before I come and rescue you and send a deliverer to save you again, first I want to send you a prophet and tell you and explain to you again why you're in the mess that you're in. And so what does God say through the prophet? Well, he basically says, look, guys, I saved you from the Egyptians. I drove out all of these nations before you. I gave you their land. But I told you not to fear their gods, and yet you have not obeyed my voice. And one interesting thing to note here is that if you look back in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, and again, Deuteronomy is the book where Moses is giving a speech to the new generation of the people of Israel who are going to inherit the promised land. And in chapter 28, he, he tells them, he says, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments, then all these curses shall come upon you. And so that chapter there, it's split up in two parts. There's blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And in verse 38, uh, one of the curses is this. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather little, for the locust shall consume it. And if you look back at Judges uh, 6 and verse 5, how are the Midianites described? Well, it says like locusts in number, they laid waste the land. And so what we see here is this is all part of their disobedience. God is being true to his word, and he has now sent a curse upon them. And so by sending a prophet, 
First, God is trying to wake the people up to their disobedience. And yet one theme that I think we see throughout the whole book of Judges is that the people regret their sin because of its consequences, but they do not repent of it. They do not truly change their hearts. And there is a massive difference between regretting the consequences of sin and actually repenting and changing and moving in a different direction. And so let's keep going. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Orphrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and he said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Okay, well, let's stop there. There's a couple things to notice. First off, whatever happened to the prophet? I mean, how, how did the people respond? Did they repent? Did they change? Well, we have no idea, but we can pretty much guess that it had no effect on them. And uh, the other thing, because the thing is, is the story moves on. It, it immediately goes from this prophet to now all of a sudden an angel's talking or is, is talking to Gideon. And so what do we learn about Gideon right from the start? Well, we, we learn that he's somewhat of a coward. And you may be thinking, well, how do we know that already? Well, we know that because he's beating out wheat in a wine press. Now, I realize most of us here in 21st century America didn't grow up on farms. Um, and so let me try to explain what's going on. Well, during this time and really throughout most of human history, the way that you would harvest wheat is that you would first cut the stalks of wheat and then you would beat or thresh out the grain so as to separate it from the straw, uh, to separate the, the grain heads from the straw or the chaff. And then you would take that and you would put those things in a basket or you would use a winnowing fork and throw it up in the air or you would use a basket and toss it. And as you would do that, the wind would come and it would blow away the lighter chaff, the part that you don't want to eat, and the heavier grain would then fall into your basket. And so you'd be able to separate the two. And so because wind is so dependent upon this whole process, you would almost always do this on a hill. And so how do we know Gideon is a coward? Well, we know that because he's doing this. He's threshing out wheat in a wine press. And wine presses were almost always these pits dug out into rocky ground. And so in other words, he would have been doing this process in a pit where there would have been no wind, no air to carry away the chaff. And, and it was actually a pretty stupid idea because if you can imagine in this process, you're beating and tossing things you would stir up a lot of dust. And so he's basically inside of this round pit inhaling all of this dust. But he's doing it because he's afraid. And so here you have this guy. He's even be doing something dangerous and perhaps stupid. But he's doing it because he's living in fear. And yet an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And if you can almost picture this scene, you just had to imagine, here's Gideon, he knows he's being a coward, he's being afraid, and someone comes and says, oh, mighty man of valor, and you can almost just imagine him turning around, like, looking for someone else, like, wait, who? Are you talking to me? Me? A mighty man of valor? Are you kidding me? But how does he respond? Look at verse 13. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And so what is Gideon doing here? 
Well, he's essentially blaming God. He's, he's saying, look, I've heard about this guy, Yahweh, this, this God, Yahweh, and how he used to help us, how he used to save us. But that's not true anymore. He's, he's forsaken us. He has left us to our own. But how does the Lord respond? He's not deterred. Look at verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And so the Lord says to Gideon, Go, because I'm going to use you to save Israel. But how does Gideon respond? He shrinks back. He begins to self-protect. He makes excuses as to why the Lord can't use him. In fact, we, we know he's uh, a doubter. We know that he's disbelieving in the Lord by the way that he uh, responds. He addresses God. Uh, he says, Lord, in all lowercase letters, which if you remember from last week in Corey's teaching, we, we saw that when we see the name Lord, L-O-R-D, in capital letters, that that actually stands for the unique, official, covenantal name for God, which is Yahweh. And we know that Gideon knows this because earlier on when he was talking about how God had forsaken them, he uses that name, Yahweh. But, but now as he is addressing the Lord, he's using the, the lowercase Lord, which would be like saying Sir or Master. And so that gives us an indication of his disbelief. But God's not deterred by this. Instead, he responds to Gideon by saying, no, Gideon, you don't understand. I said, I will be with you. And it's interesting because one of the meanings of the name Yahweh is, I am with you. And so you could almost read that sentence as God saying, I am with you, said to him, but I will be with you. And so it's this redundant message of Gideon. You need to understand. I know you're afraid. I know you're a coward, but my presence is more than enough. And so here in this passage, we see God's first gift he offers to Gideon, and that is his presence. God essentially says to Gideon, look, you can do this. You can be courageous, a mighty man of valor. Why? Not because of anything special about you, but because I am with you, because I give you my presence. And so how does Gideon respond? Look at uh, in verse 17 and 18, he, he sets up this little test, this little quiz to try to discern whether or not the Lord is who he says he is. And so he tells the angel, he says, don't leave, wait a second, I'm going to go prepare a sacrifice. And so Gideon comes back with the sacrifice, and in verse 20 it says this, And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on the rock, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And then Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and he called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it still stands at Orphrah, which belongs to the Abyssalites. Okay, so here again, we see a second gift that God offers to Gideon, and that is his peace. 
You see, Gideon brought this sacrifice partially as a way to test God and as a way to see if God was who he said he was. But he also brought it as as an offering to see if God would accept him. Thus, when the angel of the Lord touched the offering and it went up in flames, God was confirming two things to Gideon. Number one, that he is in fact Yahweh, that he is who he said he is. But he's also saying to Gideon, I accept you. We are at peace with one another. And because we are at peace with one another, I am offering you my peace. In other words, he's saying, Gideon, you can be courageous and fight the Midianites because I accept you because we are at peace. And because we are at peace, I'm giving you, I'm offering you my peace. And this passage is huge because this is essentially Gideon's conversion. This is the first time he addresses God by his covenantal unique name, Yahweh. Uh, In the ESV, it says, Alas, O Lord God, and then God's capitalized there. But what it's literally saying in the Hebrew is this, Alas, my master, Yahweh. And so Gideon's in now. He is now a believer in Yahweh. And God doesn't mess around. He immediately gives uh, Gideon a command to obey. And, And so in verse 25, it says this, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with some stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants, and he did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid... Of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut it down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning, if he is God. Let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabal. I can't even say that. Um, Jerubbabal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altars. Okay, so what do we learn here? Well, we see that Gideon here begins to take some baby steps of faith. God tells him to tear down his father's altars to the false gods. And Gideon does obey but we can tell he, he's still afraid here. He's still tempted to act like a coward. And, and, and so he does it at night so as to hide. But to be fair, Gideon would have understood that to do this, to tear down these altars, would have meant that he could have been put to death. And it's interesting to note that it's his father's altars. And so apparently his dad was some sort of priest to these false gods. It's my understanding that in these towns there would really only maybe be one uh, or a couple of these. And so the fact that it's at his father's house again, shows us that his dad is a prominent person in this false religion. And yet, how does his dad respond? Well, he basically responds by saying, look, Baal should be able to defend himself. He doesn't need us to do it. And so you have to wonder here is, 
is Gideon's dad, is he just trying to save his son's life? Or has he become skeptical of his belief in Baal since his pathetic coward son tore down these altars? And the thing you have to understand here is that Baal was considered the storm god. And so most commentators agree that the people of the town, including Joash, his dad, they would have expected Baal to strike Gideon with lightning for doing this. And yet nothing happened. And so perhaps his dad's beginning to question his own belief. And so let's keep going. Verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abyssalites were called out to follow him. And he sent to, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Azur and Zebulon and Naphtali and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it be dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me just test you once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the, ground, on the fleece only and all on the ground. Let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on the ground there was dew. Okay, so here in these last couple of verse, uh, last passage, we see God's third gift to Gideon and that is his power. In verse 33, it says that the Midianites, they had again, uh, it was again that time of year to, to gather the harvest, and so they had come to invade Israel. And so, but this time it says in verse 34 that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Yahweh, clothed Gideon. And as a result of the Spirit coming on him, he gets full of power, he gets full of boldness, and he sounds the trumpet to gather an army to fight the oppressors. But before we get too carried away with how awesome Gideon is, we have to deal with these last couple of verses. You know, I said earlier that Gideon is perhaps one of the most misunderstood characters in the Bible. I I happen to think that these last few verses are among some of the most misunderstood in the book. God has clearly revealed himself to Gideon. He has given him his presence, his peace, and his power. He has even protected Gideon against the, the people in the town for tearing down the altars. And so Gideon should have enough here. He, he is, again, he's, he's believing in God. He should have enough. And yet right before he goes into battle, he begins to question God's promises and God's ability to save him. And we know that he's be, he knows he's being a coward, and we know he's being a coward here because he starts off by questioning God. He says, if you will. What do you mean, if you will? God has already told you, Gideon, he's going to use you to save the Israelites. But then he also sets up this little test. He, he asks God to perform two miracles to, again, prove himself. And again, he says there, don't be mad at me. Don't be, uh, let me just once more come, again, uh, come to you and ask you to do this. And so the thing I want you guys to understand this morning is that this passage about the fleece is not a model for us and how we are to pray or how we're to make decisions. 
I think it's been taught that way throughout the years, and it's, it's a way to make decisions or to discern the will of God. And, and so people have said things like, well, I'm, I'm just putting my fleece out there to see what, what God's going to do. You know, maybe they would do something ridiculous like, all right, uh, I want to get married, and I'm dating Sally, and so I'm going to go. I don't know what to do. I want to hear the will of God. And so they, they go to a, a basketball court, and they are like, all right, Lord, if I make this half-court basketball shot, then I'll know that you want me to marry Sally. And so they, they shoot it, and they miss, and they're like, ah, well, I really want to marry Sally, but uh, God, you didn't come through there. So let me just, one more time, I'm going to shoot the shot. If I make it, then I'll know. And that's not what this passage is saying. We're not to test God in that way. You see, in the context, we see that this story with the fleece is nothing more than an act of disobedience, an act of disbelief. And yet, because Gideon is a baby believer, God complies. He, he goes along with the test. And so that's the story. That, again, we were just covering chapter 6 today. And so what does all of that mean for us today? In other words, what does God want you and I to know, to believe, and to do as a result of this story? Well, if you were here with us last week, Corey Bacher, he hit on our need to trust God and his sovereignty, even when it seems like all hope is lost. And he reminded us that God is always at work, that God is in control, and that he just wants us to trust him. And he reminded us that if you and I even have just a little bit of faith, God can And God will use us to make a difference. And so I just want to amen everything he shared last week. But I want to take it a step farther. I mean, look, guys, we live in a day and age in which our culture has outright rejected God, his word, and his design for life. And as a result, we're beginning to see things change in our country very rapidly and in our culture. Essentially, you know, we live in a culture where morality is determined by group consensus, not by the word of God. And as my buddy Alex Markley pointed out last week in Life Group, he said, we have moved from a place of moral relativism, which would say that truth and morality are relative and therefore determined by the individual. We've actually moved from that to a place of moral consensus, which would say a certain segment of society gets to determine what is right and what is wrong. And to question or disagree with their conclusions makes you a bigot, a dangerous bigot. And so what that means is that as Christians, as believers, we we have basically moved from a place of favor to a place of foolishness in less than a decade. You know, I mean, I forget moral majority. We are basically headed towards being a despised minority. And I think the part of this that with the changes that has made it so difficult is that Oftentimes, we don't even get a chance to explain or defend ourselves or, or even to debate and have a conversation. And I think if we're being honest, many of us have begun to feel and to experience this. And I, I believe it has many of us confused, has us scared, and perhaps even ready to quit. You know, as Christianity becomes more and more at odds with our society, and as we get pushed farther and farther into the margins, we're going to be tempted to either compromise our beliefs and our convictions, or we're going to be tempted to withdraw and to privatize our faith. In other words, guys, we're, we're going to be tempted to thresh out wheat in a wine press. We're going to crawl down into our little pits, and we're going to live lives in fear and, and lives in confusion as to why God has allowed all this to happen. I mean, right? How, how, how can we not move to those two places? 
Again, if disagreeing with our culture makes you a hater or a dangerous bigot, or perhaps worse, if it gets you fired from your job or majorly fined, how can we not be tempted in those areas? Now, maybe some of you are thinking this morning, come on, you're overreacting. But trust me, I'm not. If, if you uh, dig in what's going on, you'll see it very clearly. You know, one of my uncles gave me a book recently entitled, You Will Be Made to Care, The War on Faith, Family, and Your Freedom to Believe. And I've only read the first few chapters, and so I'm not endorsing the book or anything. But, but so far, it's been a pretty depressing read. Basically, it's a book that just shows how far and how fast America has come in regards to marginalizing Christians for their beliefs on marriage gender, and a whole host of other things. And you know, to be honest, as a father of four children, you know, we just had twins a couple weeks ago, and as I think about that weight and responsibility that comes with providing for a family, and as I think about the fact that I've only been a pastor now for less than a year, but uh, would hope to be able to do that as a career for the rest of my life, and as I think about the changes in our culture and, and, and all of that weight and responsibility, it begins to cause me to freak out. And it leads me to a place of fear and a place of anxiety. But one of the other things that it does that I've noticed recently that I, I, I do not want to be the case is that it tempts me to withdraw and to not engage unbelievers in conversation. Now look, I'm not a doomsday prepper. I mean, I don't have food piled up in the basement. I don't, I don't even have guns buried in the backyard. Um, I know some of you are there, and that's okay. We, we still love you, but uh, that's not where I'm at this morning. But again, unless you have been living uh, somewhat just under a rock or not paying attention, I think that we can all acknowledge that persecution and oppression are coming for us at some level. Now, I'm not saying we're going to get burned at the stake anytime soon, but the reality is, is that you and I, if, if we hold to these convictions, if we hold to what we believe the Word of God says— We might lose our jobs. Some of you might lose your jobs. You might get skipped for that promotion at work. You know, as you might you might even get sued or fined if if for not doing something. You know, as pastors and as a church, we we might lose some of our tax benefits, or perhaps even as pastors, we might get thrown in jail for hate speech or for refusing to do certain things. And yet, church, I want us to take heart. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, he said, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, the thing is, is that this is not a new reality for the church of Jesus Christ. The believers in the first century, they, have faced, they, they, they faced this way and to a way worse degree than us. Many Christians right now living in the world are facing persecution that you and I can't even imagine. And it's happened for the last 2,000 years. And yet, the gospel continues to go out. The church continues to flourish. It continues to grow. And one cool benefit that I, I I just realized this recently for us as believers in America, and that's this. There are going to be many verses and many passages in the Bible that you and I are going to now be able to relate to. You know, there are, there are a lot of passages in the Bible that talk about suffering and persecution that, to be honest, they, they just don't relate to, I mean, suffering relates to us, but, but not that oppression, not that persecution. So now we're going to be able to read the Bible and be like, yes, I, I feel that, I understand what Paul was saying, and it hits me and it comforts me. 
And so I just wanted this morning to remind you and, and to honestly remind myself, this message is as much for me as it is for you. And that's this, that the, the same God who approached Gideon while he was hiding in a wine press and offered him his presence, his peace, and his power, that same God, he has offered those same three gifts to us through Jesus Christ. You know, as I prepared this message this week and as I looked at the promise that God gave Gideon of his presence when he said to him, I will be with you, I discovered that those are perhaps God's favorite words in all of the Bible. And I'm sure I missed some. I just did a real quick uh, internet search. But, but in that, I found God saying those same words to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua, to Gideon. He says it to Jeremiah like six times. He says it to the people of Israel through the prophets Isaiah and Haggai. Jesus says it to Paul in the book of Acts. It's one of the few times in the book of Acts where you see the red letter where Jesus comes and he, and he talks to Paul and he tells him, I will be with you. Keep on going in Corinth. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not a Moses, I'm not Jeremiah, I'm I'm not even the Apostle Paul. You know, it makes sense that God would be with them because they're special. But Jesus, in in the Great Commission, at the end of Great Commission in Matthew 28, 20, he says this to the disciples and to us. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, you can live a courageous life even in this culture. Why? Because he is with you. You have his presence. Secondly, though, you can live a courageous life if you know Jesus Christ because because of his sacrifice, because of what he did on the cross. You and I are now at peace with God. It says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have peace with God. He accepts us. There is no longer any punishment or wrath that is due to us. But the Bible also talks about that we can have the peace of God. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And so when you do that, when you give yourself over to prayer and to pouring your anxious thoughts on the Lord, what happens? It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then finally, you and I, we can live courageous lives in this ever-changing culture because, again, if you know Jesus, you have been given the Holy Spirit. And therefore, you have been given and you have access to the power of God. Again, we saw this with Gideon. He, he, the, the Spirit clothed him, the Spirit came on him, and he received power and boldness. And yet for the Old Testament saints, the Spirit would come on them only for a little bit, and then it would depart, it would leave. But for us who are in Christ, the Holy Spirit has been sealed. His, he has been given to us forever, and he will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Later on, Paul tells a a guy who is perhaps also a little tempted to be a coward, a guy named Timothy. He tells him in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so God offers us through Jesus Christ his presence, his peace, and his power 
And because of that, because of those three things, you and I can get out of the wine press and live courageous lives that don't compromise our integrity or our beliefs. And we can also live lives that are on mission, that are not afraid to reach out and to love a world and a culture that is increasingly at odds with us. So just in closing, I just want to challenge you guys with two applications here. The first is this, to go home this week and to prayerfully read and meditate on Romans 8. And as you do, to think about the fact that because of Christ, we now have, through the Holy Spirit, His presence, His peace, and His power. I think it's one of the most powerful chapters in the whole Bible. It it talks about how we're not condemned because of Christ. It talks about the Spirit's work in our lives and, and how He comforts us and how He gives us that peace. And then it talks about just how God's love, nothing in all of the world will be able to separate us from that. And so I just want to challenge you to meditate and read that this week. And then finally, I want to challenge you this week to initiate one, just one, I'm just asking for one, one conversation with an unbeliever. I'm not saying you have to walk through a gospel track or to build a bridge diagram or whatever, but, but just I want to challenge you this week to pray and to ask God to give you an opportunity to talk about your faith with one person at some level. Again, because I, I know I've felt this temptation, and maybe some of you have, that, that as our culture begins to change and to move, the temptation is to, to withdraw, to privatize, because we're afraid of those conversations. just want to challenge you in that. And so um, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that you approached Gideon all those years ago and God, you, you came and you, you, uh, you welcomed and, and you talked to his coward heart, Lord, and you offered him these three gifts. And we thank you, God, that throughout human history, you have been coming to individuals and telling them, I will be with you. And we thank you, Lord, for the promise there in the end of the Great Commission that you will be with us always until the end of the age. And so, Lord, I just pray you would this morning comfort our hearts I pray that you would give us boldness and courage to speak for you. I pray that you would help us not to lose heart in this culture that is, that is ever growing at odds with you. Lord, we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat>